Beloved, please open your Bibles with me this morning to Romans chapter 15. We are coming to the home stretch of the book of Romans. We have two chapters left. It should take us about a year or so by my reckoning. <laughs> no, I'm just kidding. But let's stand together. I want us to read together this morning verses 1 through 6 from Romans chapter 15. And as we do, um, I want us to take, I want us to pay particular attention um, to these words that we read and especially to the way in which Paul introduces Christ again, or reintroduces Christ, shall we say, as an example for us to follow. So let's begin. We'll, we'll pick it up. Chapter 15. We're going to read verses 1 through 6. I know that that's not the division that's in the Bible that you have. That The, the paragraph goes to verse 7, but trust me, verse 7 goes with verse 8. So let's read this together, and then we will pray, and we will seek the Lord's face And pray that he'd open his word to us. This is the word of God. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good, to build him up. For Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray together. You can be seated. Heavenly Father, as we come to your holy word, I pray indeed, as we have prayed, that you would prepare our hearts, that you'd plow out, plow up the spiritual ground of our souls. That Heavenly Father, we would approach your word with reverence and with thankfulness. Because your word does not merely contain truth, it is truth. And it is truth that, Lord God, we not only need to hear, Lord, we need to receive it. We need to believe your word, and Father, we need to submit our lives to it. Father, we come to you today recognizing that in and of ourselves, we lack even the capacity to hear your word and apply it in any meaningful way. And so we come grateful that as your children, you have given to us the gift of the Holy Spirit, the author of these scriptures. And we pray, Holy Spirit, that you will teach us and make us to understand your word today. That you'd apply it to us where we are today. I pray, Father, that you would please give to me the unction of your spirit so that I would speak your word faithfully, Father, accurately. And that my desire would not be, Lord God, to be seen, but that you would show us Christ, that you would show us Christ, 
So Lord, I pray, use me as an instrument to that end. And I pray, Father, for the people that are here in this room today. We all came with varying ideas and expectations. I pray that we would leave having seen Christ. I pray these things in the blessed name of the Lamb of God, our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Amen. You know, beloved, as we are getting to the end of of the book of Romans, and we're particularly in this chapter, I want us to think about, you know, the the background to what we're, 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 we're... what we're looking at this morning. This instruction that we're hearing from Paul here, remember, comes on the heels of his admonition in the previous chapter that we talked about last week to keep the main thing the main thing, right? To have the right perception on who we are and what we are as the people of God. To keep the main thing the main thing and not be distracted by peripheral issues, right? That what matters more than our personal convictions and what matters more than our liberties in Christ and what matters more than what we might feel that we can eat or drink, what matters more than insisting on our rights and our desires, what matters more than anything about any of us is the kingdom of God. Amen? That's what matters, right? It's this kingdom into which we've been received through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought not take that lightly, right? You know, every July 4th, every Independence Day, we celebrate being Americans and how great it is to be an American. And I'm not going to bang on America, but what I'm going to say is this, is that our citizenship in the United States of America is a pale comparison to our citizenship in the kingdom of God. Amen? We're part of something glorious and wonderful, right? What matters more than anything else right? It's not us individually, but the kingdom to which we belong. I want you to think. Remember what he said last week, verse 17. In fact, look at it. It's not hard to do that. Look at what he says. He says, for the kingdom of God is a matter of eating and drinking. It's not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, right? The kingdom of God, where our king, the Lord Jesus Christ, reigns and he rules over his obedient subjects for their everlasting blessing and for God's eternal glory. We have been brought into this kingdom by sovereign grace. We've brought, been brought into this kingdom by, by the mercy and the electing love first of Father God, right? We've been brought in this kingdom by the salvific work of Christ, culminating in him, shouldering our sins, and paying our sin debt and enduring the wrath that we deserved in our place on the cross, dying the sinner's death and then rising triumphantly from the grave. And we've been brought into this kingdom. We've been brought into this kingdom through the pursuing, regenerating, faith-giving ministry of the Holy Spirit. We've been taken out of the darkness of this world and brought in to the light of God's kingdom. And we can never take that for granted and we can never treat that lightly and we can never treat it with disdain. We're now subjects in a kingdom that's defined by righteousness, peace, and joy. Righteousness, peace, and joy are what should define us in this kingdom, right? Right? 
We've been declared righteous by God through faith in Christ. We've exchanged the filthy rags of our sin and been imputed with the righteousness of Christ, which can never fade. We've been justified in the eyes of God. And so then we must live like it, right? We need to live as people of integrity, with uprightness, seeking to be obedient to the commands of our Lord in the power of the Holy Spirit who now dwells in us. We have no excuse for low living, beloved. No excuse. We need to live in such a way that that pleases God with our lives. And part and parcel of that is dealing with our brothers and sisters in righteousness, isn't it? Isn't it? We're now subjects in a kingdom of peace. Our sins, think about this, our sins, we say this a lot, but think about what it means. Our sins, past, present, future, all of them, not some, not the part, but the whole, right? They've been nailed to the cross. We've been forgiven. And so now there is no longer condemnation for any who are in Christ Jesus. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? Nobody. We've been reconciled to God. We've been made at peace with God. And we're no longer children of wrath like the rest of mankind. But we are children of God. And so we must seek as those who have received peace to be peacemakers. Not peacekeepers. Not coddling one another. And not overlooking one another. You know, not one of their sins or, 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 or transgressions. Not acting like we're that kindly grandfather that only views everybody through rose-colored glasses we need to view one another through the lens of love and that means encouraging and exhorting in those areas when we can encourage and exhort it means cautioning and correcting when we need to caution and correct but we do it all for the sake of the peace of our brothers and sisters in christ the experience of peace with God and peace with one another, right? And then last, we're subjects in a kingdom that's marked by joy. Right? The kingdom of joy in the Holy Spirit. A kingdom of rejoicing in God's grace. In rejoicing in His favor to us that we're ultimately undeserving. In rejoicing in His power to accomplish what we can never do. Rejoicing in His love and His wisdom and His faithfulness. Rejoicing in His promises because He does not change. Praise God. As the redeemed of God, we're meant to enjoy the Lord. We're meant to, we're meant to delight in Him. We're meant to rejoice in Him. So then we've got to be seeking as those who have received joy in the Holy Spirit. We need to be seeking to enrich and encourage the joy of salvation in our brothers and our sisters in Christ. The fruit of the Holy Spirit, right? That's what we're to do. Working together for the mutual joy of one another in Christ. Beloved, the kingdom's of first importance, right? Who we are and how we live as the subjects of King Jesus, that's the main thing. We're part of a kingdom that, look, we haven't seen the half. We're part of a kingdom that is, that is revealed in part right now in the church, right? That, that, that on our greatest days of worship, on the greatest moments of experiencing the glory of God, we're part of a kingdom that in the most, the greatest experience of that kingdom right now on earth, it is but a, a mild foretaste of the glory of the kingdom to come. 
Man, that ought to stir our hearts. We're part of a kingdom that's visible now in the Lord's church, but praise God is yet to be fully consummated at the return of the Lord Jesus Christ. When every eye will see and every everyone will behold him as he is. Yeah, come Lord Jesus. I'm with you, brother. We've got to keep the main thing the main thing. And it's that perspective, beloved, that, that guides what Paul has to say to us in this text that we're looking at this morning. And I'm just going to tell you what we're going to be looking at so you can be looking out for it as we go through it, okay? But in this text, here's what Paul's going to do. First, he's going to call us to be willing to sacrifice for the spiritual good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. He's going to call us to be willing to sacrifice for the spiritual good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. And then he's going to say, hey, you know what? The greatest example of that is the Lord Jesus Christ himself. And then moreover, he's going to say, the guide that you need to do that, that's the word of God that's been provided for you. And then the last thing he's going to show us is that what is our goal? What ought to be our goal as God's people is not our glory, but his. Right? So let's look at this. Paul starts by telling us to be willing to sacrifice for the good of others. Just look again at verses 1 and 2. And look what he says. He says, We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. And what Paul's saying here just follows logically, beloved, from, from what, we've already, what he's already told us in chapter 14, Right? Those who are strong in the body of Christ, those who are mature in the body of Christ, those who are more spiritually advanced in the body of Jesus Christ. Listen, we've got an obligation. You have an obligation. You've got a divinely imposed responsibility to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please yourselves. In other words, for the strong, Paul says, their chief consideration is in the fellowship of faith, is not to be self-focused and self-seeking and self-advancing and self-pleasing. It's to rather embrace the spiritual and moral obligation not to think only of themselves, but to think of the spiritual needs of others and act on it. Act on it. I want us to see this very clearly. I want us to get the, the gist in the heart of this. Look, look at that phrase, to bear with them, right? I want to make sure we understand what that actually means. Like sometimes when we say, well, I'm, I'm just going to bear with that guy, we do it through gritted teeth, don't we? Don't we? Like we've all got that uncle or that family member that when they come over, you know, or when you're together at a family function or whatever, you know, he's not, you just can't, you can't get along with a guy until you just, you grin and bear it, right? You grin and bear it. And you grudgingly get through it. That's not what Paul is saying here, right? Obviously. Duh. That's not what he's getting at here. That phrase to bear with them doesn't mean just tolerating the weaker brother and begrudgingly forbearing with him. What it really means is this. It means to lift him up and carry him along. It means to, to put some effort into caring for them, to support them, to carry them along as a father or a mother would carry a child, right, in love and in tenderness, with understanding and with care. That's the idea. It's the idea of carrying them along and helping them in their weakness, nurturing them in the scriptures, helping them to understand 
where they don't yet understand. With the intent, and here's the goal, with the intent that each one of us would make it to the finish line. Right? Paul says to the strong man, don't get angry with the weak. Don't, don't, don't be frustrated with them. Don't, don't, don't get angry with the spiritually weak and immature. Don't disregard them. Don't cut them off from your love and concern. Patiently instruct them. Bear them up. Carry them along. Help them out. Be a good big brother or big sister is the idea. Because there's greater things at stake. There's greater things at stake. The glory of God, the well-being of souls, you know, the, the testimony of the gospel. Those things are more important than you insisting on pleasing yourself. There are greater issues at stake. And so therefore, Paul says, look, let each of us please his neighbor for his good. To build him up. That's not a command only to the strong. That's a command to everybody, isn't it? Every believer has a duty and an obligation to please his neighbor. Now, I want to make sure we don't misunderstand this. Paul's not saying that we should be men pleasers. That we should live so that other people are pleased first and foremost and primarily above all other things. That's not what he's saying here, right? It's not that we should compromise the gospel to appease other people or the truths of the gospel to appease anyone, right? That was a sin about which Paul pointedly said to the Galatians, look, as we've said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one that you received, let him be accursed. For am I now seeking the approval of man or of God? Or am I trying to please man? If I were still trying to please man, I would not be a servant of Christ. He's not telling us to be like Thomas Jefferson was with his old, his New Testament and take a penknife to the scriptures and cut out things that might be displeasing to other people. That's not the encouragement here. He's not telling us to coddle other people in their sin or their rebellion. That's not what he's saying. Men and women that do that, listen to me, I'm going to say this very plainly. Men and women that do that, who do such things, they are pleasing men and not pleasing Christ and not serving Him. And in fact, they're really serving themselves and pleasing themselves. They're manipulators that act to their own selfish benefit and advantage and not for the good of another person's soul. The neighbor pleaser that Paul's talking about here doesn't seek his own advantage. Instead, what he does is he seeks the good of his neighbor. What's going to help them grow and mature in Christ? What is going to help my brother or my sister encourage them? What's going to encourage them to walk in greater faithfulness? What's going to make them more like Jesus? And what can I do to help that along? That's the goal. That's the goal. The right attitude, in fact, would be something like this. That I love my neighbor and I'm seeking his good and his welfare, even God's highest and his best for him. And I want him to be edified and I want him to be built up. And even if that requires personal sacrifice on my part, I want this person to be spiritually strong. How can I serve that end? What can I do to that end? That's the expression 
of Christian love, beloved, that builds a body. Paul describes it, in fact, how it works when he, again, when he writes to the Ephesians. And I'm reading from Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11, where he says this, describing how the body builds itself up, how it edifies, how we edify one another. He says, and he, that's Christ, gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry and for the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way unto Him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every point with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. The only way the body can build itself up in love is when we are committed to sacrificing each one of us for the spiritual good of our brother or sister in Christ. When it's not about us, but it's about Christ formed in them. When it's not about my desires and my rights and what I believe that I can do and what everyone ought to, ought to agree with me about and what everybody ought to do for me. And how everyone ought to regard me. And how everyone ought to honor me. Me, me, me. But rather, what can I do to lay down my life and prefer my brother or my sister as more important than me and express my brotherly love to my brother and sister in Christ so that they might become more like Jesus. I would say to you this, that for the majority of professing Americans in this country, that thought seldom crosses their minds. Because church has become a movie theater. It's become a stage play. It's become a concert. It's become all of these things that we can all, it's become a sports event where we can all attend and have this superficial experience of life together, which is just that superficial. We need to seek to please our neighbor. And what that means when we talk about pleasing our neighbor, it's, it's in the sense of doing for them what is beneficial for their edification. Doing everything we can to build one another up in the faith, to strengthen their hand in the Lord, to help them to honor and please Christ. To invest our lives and not satisfy ourselves with just mere association or rubbing shoulders or eating an occasional meal or flattering one another. Or saying empty things that really carry no weight. Or even acts of service that are driven by 
how this will accrue points for my reputation. Are we committed to that kind of service to one another? Because to do that is going to require that we sacrifice of ourselves. And even of our legitimate liberty or freedoms in Christ. But the thing about that, beloved, is that we see the quintessential example of such personal sacrifice for the good of others in none other than our Lord Jesus Christ. He's our great example. He is the sterling example. He is the perfect, only perfect example. And that's why Paul says what he does in verse 3. You're used to this with Paul, right? Paul makes a statement. He makes, he develops why it's so important. Hey, look, you guys got to be willing to sacrifice for the good of other people. You've got to be willing to lay down your life for your brother or your sister in Christ. You got to be willing to, to, to give, give out your rights, give away your rights for the sake of the kingdom of God and for God's glory. And listen, here's the scriptural reason why. And he always goes back to the Old Testament, right? Right? So here he goes. He goes back to Psalm 69. He goes back to a Messianic Psalm that Christ applied to himself, right? I think it's so interesting that when Paul is grounding his, his, his commands here, he's not telling stories about what he knew about Jesus, which, you know, the Gospels had not been written at this point. They're not complete at this point, all of them. And so he's not referring to that. He's saying, let me tell you about the Scripture in the Old Testament that tells us all about Jesus. Right? So he goes to a messianic psalm. He goes to Psalm 69. And he says these words. Look at it. Verse 3. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written in Psalm 69, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. The reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. He takes Psalm 69 and he uses it as both a proof and an example, right? He uses it as a proof and as, a, as an example to us. Our Lord and, and, and King, Jesus Christ, he didn't please himself. Christ's life was not characterized by pleasing himself, was it? Was it? Rather, he sought to please God the Father for the benefit of others. And you know what? The cost to pleasing the Father for the benefit of others, to Christ, it was staggering. And it's a price that not a single one of us will ever be forced to pay. He's our great example. And when you read this psalm, when you read through Psalm 69, the cost of Christ, the cost to Christ to redeem us comes shining through. Comes shining through. For instance, Psalm 69, verse 4. More in number than the hairs of my head are those who hate me without cause. Mighty are those who would destroy me. Those who attack me with lies. That's a very apt description of Christ's life on this earth, isn't it? How he was hated by so many for simply speaking the truth of the word of God and living a righteous life before almighty God in heaven. 
at calling others to heed his words that he did not speak on his own accord, but only that which the Father had given, given him to say. They hated him. Those in the power, of the positions of authority and power sought to destroy him. The Pharisees attacked him with lies. Why? Because they couldn't attack him with the truth. Verse 8, I have become a stranger to my brothers, an alien to my mother's sons. I can imagine, you know, any of you ever grow up in a home with a high achiever? Any of you? You grow up in a home with a, with a brother or sister that's a high achiever? That can be uncomfortable, can it? Especially if you're not. Imagine growing up with a perfect sibling. Not just perfect in the eyes of your parents. You know, all they think Cammie can't do anything wrong, said many. But actuality, with, with a sibling who's perfect, and not just perfect, but perfectly holy and righteous. And Jesus' brothers did. And his sisters did. And they didn't believe in him. Verses 10 through 12. When I wept and humbled my soul with fasting, it became my reproach. When I made sackcloth my clothing, I became a byword to them. He's a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, right? And they mocked him for it. On the talk of those who sit in the gate, that's the rulers. And the drunkards make songs about me. Verses 20 and 21. Reproaches have broken my heart so that I am in despair. I looked for pity, but there was none. And for comforters, but I found none. They gave me poison for food and for my thirst. They gave me sour wine to drink. That applies to nobody else in history but Christ. Perfectly, that is. These are all words, aren't they, of great personal sacrifice on the part of the Lord Jesus Christ? Aren't you grateful for them? What a Savior we have. What a remarkable Redeemer we have. What a loving, caring Christ we have. What a remarkable Lord who would lay aside His rights and take to Himself human flesh and suffer such indignity for us. Why did He suffer so? Psalm 69, verse 9, the one that Paul quotes, Why did he suffer so? For zeal for your house has consumed me, and the reproaches of those who reproach you have fallen on me. Why did Christ lay aside his rights to come to this earth and become the object of the sinner's scorn? Why did he endure the hatred of men and women who hate God? You know why? He tells us it was zeal for God's house. It was zeal for God's kingdom. It was zeal for God's household and for his people that consumed Christ and led to his willingness to sacrifice for the sake of our souls and to repair the reproach of fallen men in order to save us. What would have ever become of us, beloved? What would have ever happened to us? What would we have come to if Christ had pleased himself instead of coming to earth as a man and dying for our sins? Where would we be if Christ himself had put his own interests first? Jesus said, I have not come down from heaven to do my own will, 
but the will of Him who sent me. Praise God, that's true. You know what Paul's doing here? Paul is using the proverbial sledgehammer to kill a fly. That's what he's doing here. He's using a sledgehammer to kill a fly. You see it? Look, here's he's getting it. Jesus Christ endured the worst that men could do to him in order to please his Father and to win our salvation, right? Praise God he did that. He did it willingly and not under obligation. It wasn't anybody that forced Christ to do what he did. He did it out of love, mercy, compassion, and desire to bring glory to his Father and to redeem a people for himself, right? It cost him dearly to do it. And by comparison... Look, man, whatever sacrifice we may make for the spiritual good of our brothers and sisters is minuscule. It's minuscule. It's infinitesimally small. All we're called to do, I want you to think about this, man. All we are called to do is to bear with and bear up our brothers and sisters in their spiritual weakness, and to overlook the unimportant ways in which we differ with one another. And then get on with the task of building them up and striving to grow together with them in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's all. Like our Lord Jesus who sacrificed himself for our redemption and, and to sanctify a people for himself, we should also be filled with zeal for God's house. And you know what? Eager to sacrifice for the sake of our brothers and sisters in order to keep the main thing the main thing, which is the kingdom of God, right? Right? Are you with me on this? In his exposition on this verse, Charles Spurgeon said of the Lord Jesus Christ, he said this, he said, he took the most trying place in the whole field of battle. He stood where the fray was hottest. He did not seek to be among his disciples as an earthly king is in the midst of his troops, guarded and protected in a time of strife. But he exposed himself to the fiercest part of the conflict. What Jesus did, that should we who are his followers do. Not one of us considering himself and his own interests, but all of us considering our brethren and the cause of Christ in general. Christ's our great example in that. He's our great example, and we have his word as our guide. Look what Paul says in verse 4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope now, before we look at the particulars of what paul says here i want you to notice what paul's doing notice what he's doing with me what he's saying in essence is that the scripture makes perfect application in this circumstance he's saying look i went back to psalm 69 because this perfectly applies even though it's a sledgehammer with a fly it perfectly applies to this thing we're talking about right But even more, what he's getting at, what he's getting across is this, is that the Scriptures have been given to us to rule the whole of our lives, to guide and to direct us in all things, right? Like, remember, we're in a kingdom. 
and we're under a king, our Lord Jesus. And it's a kingdom that we've received so that we can, a kingdom of righteousness that we've received so that we can live in righteousness. A kingdom of peace so that we can live at peace. It's a kingdom of joy so that we can seek the holy joy of others. How do we do that? Well, we do that through abiding by the living word that is the, if you will, constitution of the kingdom. That's how we do it. We live in a kingdom that's ruled by a king. And that king is the Lord Jesus Christ. And he rules it through his word as inspired and applied by the gracious working of the Holy Spirit. So get about knowing the word. In fact, notice what Paul says here about about the word of God. I want you to see it. He says it was written for our instruction. It was written to teach us. It was written to transform us is the idea. It was written to shape and to mold us is the idea. It was written to take the the blank slate of the new believer in Christ and write upon us the character and the image and the likeness of Jesus. That's what it was given to do. And it's priceless. Yeah, I don't know if you've seen this. I don't know if you noticed this. I don't mean to throw shade at him. Well, I do actually. I'm going to throw shade at him. Um, I don't know if you've noticed this whole thing that's going on in college football with the name image likeness thing. You know, you know what I'm talking about? Where now we are spending money on athletes and giving them money to go to school and we're giving their schools are giving them money based upon their potential to earn money for the university through their name, image and likeness. Right. Or because of their name, image and likeness. I just saw that. Well, it's turned all, you know, not all. It's turned a lot of high school athletes into mercenaries. Right. I just saw where Tennessee signed this dude, this kid to be a quarterback, eight million bucks. Eight million dollars. How about you use that for higher education? Eight million dollars. Because of this kid's name, image, and likeness. It's worth that. I'm going to say this really honestly. No sinner's name, image, or likeness is worth eight million dollars. No, I mean it. The name and the image and the likeness that is worth infinitely more than any of us could ever cobble together or imagine is that of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're to be shaped in that image, name, image, and likeness. And for that reason, we've been given the Word of God. Think about what Paul said to Timothy, right? He said to him, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 and 17, all scripture is breathed out by God. Its source is the Lord. And it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. What an awesome gift the word of God is, right? In other words, here's what that means. If the word of God means anything to us, If it means anything to us, we need to be receiving it into our minds and into our souls, and we need to be practicing what it tells us, right? Christianity is not just religious theory to be explored and considered and debated and and whatever, tossed about. That's that's not what it is. The truth of, of the Scripture is to be believed and practiced. 
The word for instruction, again, it's about more than intellectual knowledge. It's the idea of applied knowledge that's beneficial to the soul. We need the scripture to inform and reshape our minds and our lives because a theoretical Christianity, listen to me, beloved, a theoretical Christianity, a all head, no heart, no life Christianity is absolutely worthless and it's damning. Are you hearing me? Martin Lloyd-Jones asked these questions. I love Martin Lloyd-Jones. I'm done reading him as it regards Romans because he's done with his commentary at Romans 14 and verse 17. Then he became too ill to finish it. I know. That's how I felt when I got to the end of it. Like, ugh. Right? He says this. Is there anything more dangerous than a theoretical Christianity? Now, I just stop and think about that. Is there anything more dangerous than a theoretical Christianity? A Christianity that is concerned only with giving assent to propositions and that defends the faith and discipleship, perhaps, but with the intellect only. How often, he asks, how often has that led to antinomianism? To the grace of God allows me to do all and anything that I want because it's God's job to forgive me. How often has it led to barrenness and dryness and coldness and hardness? Those are great questions all, aren't they? They're meaningful questions. They're serious questions. They're questions we better consider. We ought to think about how do we keep that from happening? Paul tells us. If the scriptures are going to be of any great benefit to our souls, here's what needs to take place. When Paul says that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Here's what Paul's saying. Here's what he's saying. First of all, he's calling us to a faithful consistency and a steadfastness and an endurance in the word of God. That we persist in our reading and we persist in our study and we persist in, in our understanding and believing and applying of the word of God to our souls. That when we get to something that's uncomfortable for us, we don't just skip over it. Or slide that under the passage to be studied later when I'm not so convicted by it file. The truth is this. When we study scripture and we ask God to apply it to our hearts and our lives, sometimes it does hurt. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Look, here's what I'm getting at, right? Here's how somebody reads the word of God ineffectually. They read through, say, the Sermon on the Mount. And as they're reading through the Sermon on the Mount, they're like a Pharisee. They're reading through it going, huh, how remarkable. I'm not convicted by anything. This could be a description of me. There's nothing for me to address in my life. Right there with you, Jesus. Pound those guys. I don't know about you. When I read the Sermon on the Mount, the Sermon on the Mount reads me. It reads me. And if you can read that without any conviction leading to repentance unto life, then I'm telling you, you're not reading it rightly. We need to endure in the Word. Sometimes it's difficult. We become more and more aware. We see more clearly a distance between our conduct and the commands of Scripture. 
It exposes desires and motives that are unworthy of one who's in Christ. And it compels us to do what our flesh doesn't want to do. It corrects our wrong thinking, our wrong believing, our wrong acting. But beloved, listen to me, rather than shrinking away, we need a strength and a will to continue and to persevere in the study of and the submission to the Word of God and to have our desires and our motives kindled in the right direction. Our Conduct sanctified to have our lives controlled by the love of Christ, right? I've had people talk to me before like, why can't we have like the, I'm not asking you to be Tony Robbins. I'm not asking you to be Joel Osteen. But why can't we have something that makes us feel good about ourselves? Now I've had people ask me that. Now, listen, I want to say this to you, and I don't mean this flippantly at all. And I don't, you know, some of you, I don't want you to be offended, anybody. But I want you to hear what I'm going to say to you. I want you to hear this from the heart, okay? My responsibility as a pastor is not to make you feel good about yourself. My responsibility as a pastor is to preach the word of God faithfully and accurately and to apply it to your life. And in fact, I'm going to say this to you. Your goal for your life is to not feel good about yourself. The goal for your life is not to feel good about yourself. It's to be overjoyed in Christ. That's the goal of your life. Man, if there's a ministry that makes you feel good about you and makes you feel all great about who you are, please show me that in Scripture. Show me that in Scripture. There's a reason they didn't like Isaiah and they didn't like Jeremiah. Because they wouldn't heal their wounds lightly. Now, beloved, listen to what I'm going to say to you. Feeling good about yourself? I'm not saying that you shouldn't. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, sometimes people will take this to the extreme, right? And they'll be like, oh, so you're saying nobody should ever take, you know, pride in a good sense or take pleasure in doing something well. No, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what I'm saying. That's a ridiculous statement to make. And I have often complimented people on their successes that were really the gifts of God to them, that they did nothing to earn, but God delighted to bless them with. Right? And for their faithful use of the gifts that God has given to them. Is there an appropriate place to praise a brother or sister in Christ in that and to encourage them? Surely there is. And that's not what I'm saying. But the goal is not make you feel good about you. Because I'm going to tell you right now, and you know this, that feeling is fleeting, isn't it? That feeling is fleeting, and it's not a foundation on which to build a life. In fact, you know what kind of foundation that is? That is the shifting sand that Christ said, the house that's built upon it will be destroyed when the wind and the waves come. The house that lasts is the one that's built on Christ's words. Amen? So the goal is not to love yourself. Jesus said, if, if anyone would come after me, let, me de- let him deny himself. You know what that means. It means let him refuse to associate with himself, with he, what he used to be. The goal is not to love yourself, it's to love Christ, who loves you in spite of yourself. 
And he's done everything to redeem you. Are you with me? We need to endure in the word of God. You dig into it and you don't get out of it. And you read it for effect. And you read it with the intention to bring your life into alignment with what it says. And to bring your thoughts into alignment with what it says. And to bring your feelings into alignment with what it says. No matter where they are or how far scattered to the winds they might be. The all-sufficient, perfect, inerrant, infallible truth of God has the power to really change us because it holds the very power of God. And so we need to endure in the world. And word. And here's the result. And it's beautiful. It's encouragement from the Scriptures so that we might have hope. When you endure in the Word, when by the grace of God and the power of God, we persist and endure in faithful study and reception and application of the Word of God to our souls, we'll discover this, that the ancient words, they actually hurt to heal. They're filled with great promise and great satisfaction. They bring forth in our hearts a deeply rooted hope in God and in His gospel. This certain hope that, you know what? God is for us and not against us. That God is, is, is committed to refining and sustaining us as we grow in our conformity to the image of Christ. That, you know, that, that He's challenging and equipping and motivating and encouraging us. In regard especially to our relationships with our brothers and sisters in Christ that are to be focused in one direction, as we'll see in just one second. By the encouragement that we receive from enduring in the Scriptures, the great hope of eternal fellowship with God right now and throughout eternity, it's strengthened and sustained in our hearts. It keeps us close to the Lord. Listen to me. I don't care who you are. If you are not in the Word of God, don't think that you are close to the Lord. You are not. If I never spoke to my wife, if I never heard my wife speak to me, there would be no closeness between us, despite the fact there's a covenant between us. Are you hearing me? Enduring in the Word keeps us close to Him. It keeps us intimately connected to Him. It makes us mindful of who He is and who we are in Him, which is a people made for His glory. His glory. That's the powerful and the practical purpose of enduring in the Scriptures. Man, they're the abiding Word of God, and therefore, they're the living Word. And it's through that means that God imparts to us the encouragement and the hope that we need. And if we're not being encouraged, and if we're not being driven to hope, as we endure in reading the Scriptures, listen, we're not reading them rightly. We're not reading them rightly. And we need to start reading them, not as one who is reading them, but as one who lets them read us, like I said earlier. It should lead to encouragement and hope, and it ought to stoke our hearts to pursue the goal that Paul envisions. And that goal, that goal, it's not surprising if we've been reading Romans and paying attention. That goal is to bring glory to God, right? Because God's glory is our goal. It's always God's glory, isn't it? Isn't it? For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be what? Glory forever. Amen. Romans eleven thirty six. It's always His glory. In fact, look at what Paul says here. It's really the prayer of his heart. It's kind of like a... Commentators describe this as a wish prayer. Like, he's not actually praying like he does say in the, you know, the book to, up to the Philippians or something. But, but it's a wish prayer kind of thing. Like, you know, hoping this happens kind of thing. But not like a hope of... A hope that's rooted in, in you know... 
the conviction that God can make this happen. Look what he says, verses 5 and 6. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with the Lord, in accord with Christ Jesus, King Jesus, right? Messiah Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. I'm not going to spend a great deal of time on this because we've, we don't really need to. We've kind of been talking about it along the way. But I do want to point out a few things because, you know, this is sort of the climax of what Paul's getting to. He calls attention to the fact that, first of all, God is the author and the source, isn't he, of endurance and encouragement. He's the one. That he's the author. He's the source. And he does it by means of his word. That's how he does it. He's the author of those things. And the more that we know him through his word and draw near to him, the greater that we will experience the endurance and the encouragement that we need. And that will cause us to be in harmony with one another. Like, here's the thing. I I, I use this illustration lots of times with people in marriage counseling when they're getting married. And they want to know how to grow closer to one another. How do we improve our relationship? And I'll just say it's like this. It's like a triangle. God's at the top and the two of you are on either side. And the closer that you grow to the Lord Jesus Christ individually, the closer that you draw to the Lord Jesus Christ, you will invariably be invariably be drawn closer to one another, right? Imagine it. Just picture it in your mind, right? Christ at the top of the triangle. Here you are on either side. You both grow closer to Christ. Guess what? You go closer to one another, don't you? Don't you? Same principle here. If we're all seeking Christ honestly and earnestly and, you know, deliberately, there's not going to be fractures and fissures in this body. You know why? Because we're going to, each of us, be growing closer individually to Christ and therefore growing closer to one another as a result. Are you hearing me? That's how it works. It's not rocket science. It's trigonometry. It's not rocket science, right? It's not. Paul's getting is despite whatever else may be different about us. And there are things that are different. Paul's prayer is that our oneness of mind and soul about the essentials of the faith, about the essentials of the faith, but the bedrock truths of, of the faith, you know, the, the nature and the character of God and the nature and the character of man and the person and salvific work of Jesus and, and salvation being by grace through faith in Christ alone and the sanctifying ministry of the Holy Spirit and, and the, the church as the family of God and Christ's return and the end of the age, all of that stuff. Our agreeing, agreement in that would lead to a durable and a real harmony among us. And the goal of that harmony, Paul says, is that together you may, with one voice, glorify God, glorify the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. That word here in there, together, that together you may, with one voice, glorify, it's translated from a Greek word, humothumadon, which is really a compound of two different words, one of which means to rush along and the other one which means in unison. And the way that that word is used, it's almost like a musical thing. Okay, follow with me. It's like, it's like an orchestra where each person perhaps is sounding different notes All of them in the same key. And all of them building upon one another. 
in order to produce this beautiful sound that harmonizes in pitch and in tone. Right? I mean, you, if you've ever been to the orchestra, you know that. And if you haven't been, you ought to go. It's pretty cool. But if you, if you go, or, or even if you go to like the opera, like you'll hear the pit orchestra or whatever, you will hear them, you'll hear them tuning their instruments, right? And when you hear them tuning their instruments, it's like, man, this stinks, right? I mean, you're listening to them, and it doesn't sound good. And they'll all be doing this individually, and then all of a sudden, they will like play this note or melody, and perfect harmony and these what were what sounded to you like notes that couldn't possibly go together all of a sudden do and it makes this wall of sound that is like incredibly amazing right that's what paul's getting at here that like the instruments of a great orchestra under the direction of a orchestra master right a director that the Holy Spirit blends together the lives of members of Christ's church into such a symphony of praise unto God the Father so that together we ascribe to God the glory that He's due. And because it's many made one, it amplifies it. Amplifies that glory of God. The exulting in the glory of God like it ought to be. To glorify God is to exult, beloved. To exult in His holiness. To exult in His weightiness. To exult in His beauty and His majesty. To exult in His utter perfection and the wonder of His person, His awesomeness and His splendor and His great worthiness to be praised and exalted as Lord and God and not just with words but with our lives. It's not about us. It's not about our desires and our rights. The church has gotten off track in America. It's not about the people in the pews. It's about God in heaven. He is supreme. He is ultimate. He is the highest. He reigns. And our lives, together and individually, they only find their proper place in Him. In Him. So whatever you eat or you drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do it to the glory of God. Do it to His praise. Do do it to the fame of His name. Do it to the way in which you make Him glorious in this world. The resounding declaration of our hearts. It needs to be what I read at the beginning of this worship service. Not to us, O Lord, not to us. But to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. God's glory is what is supreme. It's what's supreme to Him. And that doesn't make God egotistical. It makes God not an idolater. Because if anything other than God's glory was foremost in God's affection, He would be. Because there's no one greater than He is. And there's no one worthy of praise more than he is worthy. Are you hearing me? Beloved, we used to know that really well. We used to really, man, we would declare that. I know some of us are still doing it, but we need to remember what we once knew. 
God's glory is not to be trifled with. It's not to be treated in an unseemly way. He's to be glorified above all. It's the thing for which we've been made. It's that for which we've been saved. It is that for which we've been gathered together. It's that for which we have been brought into the kingdom of God in all of our lives to glorify Him as supreme. Amen? I'll close with these words from John Hanna. He said this. Our only hope is to return to the God of the Scriptures and the truth that the center of all meaning in life is not ourselves, but God. God is the center of the universe and the essence of all wisdom and of all truth. The purpose of life derives from God's desire to see His own glory and behold His own beauty. Thus, it is time for Christians to be called back to the truth that the meaning of life is to be found in the glory of God alone. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, my prayer right now, my earnest longing, Lord, to you is that these words that we've heard this morning would truly affect our souls in a meaningful way. It would affect our hearts in a meaningful way. That, Lord, indeed we have seen Christ and indeed we have seen your glory. That, indeed, we have seen what is of greatest significance and greatest importance. What is the main thing? That we have seen it, seen you, and beheld you in your majesty and that we will forever be changed as a result. I pray you meet with us right now in this time in which we respond to your holy word. And I pray that we would do it, Lord God. We would respond to your word in sincerity and in faith and in honesty. And in, Lord God, repentance and in gladness that our sin is covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And that we would, that we would rise from our, our knees and from our conviction and from our repentance, not rejoicing in ourselves, but rejoicing in Christ. Help us now to do that, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.